So uh, to review where we've been on the road, Dan already kind of mentioned this. We started off this series asking the question, am I willing to let Jesus lead me? And uh, really, uh, this whole thing is predicated on us being willing to follow Jesus and listen to the things that he says, go to the places that he goes, be challenged by him. Um, and, you know, if you're not willing to kind of answer yes to that question, the rest of the questions over the next few weeks are going to be troubling for you. Uh, but if you are willing to just say, look, I don't know where this journey is going, but I'm willing to let Jesus lead me on it, uh, it takes you to some really interesting places. Last week, we looked at the question of, am I willing to let Jesus heal me? And we talked about how the idea of first healing seems very obvious. Of course, I want Jesus to heal me. But in Jesus's world, healing oftentimes requires us to throw aside the things that we know about our lives, the assumptions we've made about our lives. And we looked at a guy named Bartimaeus and how in this one decisive moment, he throws off this cloak that, that contains everything he, to that point he's known about himself and the world. And he throws himself into this journey with Jesus. Today, we're going to look at the question of, am I willing to embrace the other? And we're going to look at the, the question, or the, the, one of the stories that Jesus tells to his disciples and some other Jewish folks. Um, and I think that this very familiar parable called the Good Samaritan, anybody ever heard of the story of the Good Samaritan? Yeah. Um, I think that this story uh, may, come, uh, may come out challenging us maybe more than it has challenged you in the past because there are multiple levels that this is working on. And what I want to talk about, first of all, is the whole concept of the other. The other is, is more or less a, a sociological or anthropological term that, that uh, people use to describe simply folks who aren't like us. You see, human beings have uh, an, an innate need and tendency to gather into groups, right? Does this make sense to anybody? We have a tendency to surround ourselves with people that we are comfortable with, that look like us. The most, uh, most ready, readily uh, obvious place this manifests itself is in junior high and high school, right? I, some of you guys are closer to that than I am, but I have kids. I have a, an eighth grader, and I have a daughter who just graduated High school. In my high school in, uh, in Texas in the 80s, we had four major social groups. You know, we had, f forgive me, I, I, I'm, I'm going to use the terms that we use. They might be uh, not quite correct. But we had um, the goat ropers, <laughs> cowboy guys, right, cowboy people. Uh, remember, this is Texas. Um, we had the lowriders. So we had folks of Hispanic uh, descent, you know, and, and lowrider culture was kind of still a big thing with the chinos and uh, in the 80s. We had the socias, so folks who wore Sperry's and, and uh, polo shirts before they were brought back. And then we had the jocks, you know. And so uh, those were the four groups. And, and, and you usually found yourself kind of gravitating towards one of those groups or the other, but I, I always... I always find, I have a suspicion that like if you asked me in the 80s like which group you, I was a part of, I'd be like, oh, I'm, I, don't, I don't belong to any group. But like I probably really did. Um, and it was probably like the polo people. Um, but uh, others 
and, and identifying the other in our lives um, is actually really, really important. And the way you do this really is, is it's a very natural progression because in order to identify the other in your life, you actually start by identifying who are the people who are like you. So just if we take it on an assumption that we gravitate towards people who are like us and we, gravi- we gravitate towards groups, we just start off by saying, well, in my group, what do the people in my group, what do we dress like? What do we look like? You can ask other questions. What do we believe? Where are the places that we go to eat? And if you, if you really dive into these questions, what you actually find out is like most of us exist in a pretty a homogeneous world where we do things with people who look like us. We go to places where people like us go, whether to eat or to hang out. And in a sense, there is nothing wrong with this. You know? And then if you, if you can draw those boundaries, then it's actually, you can start to look at other people and go, okay, well, there are other people out there who don't go to the places that I go to. There are other places who don't, there are people who don't dress like I do. There are people who don't even think like I do. Those are other people. And I think one of the best steps we can actually take in our journey as human beings, and I actually would say, based on today's message, one of the best journeys we can take as a Christ follower is to start to learn what our group looks like. And who are the people who don't usually belong in that group? Because Jesus has something very important to say about who those people are. But before we can even get to embracing the other, we actually have to come to terms with the fact that we have others in our lives. Because some of us would start this journey by saying, no, no, I love everybody. No, 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 I, I, I'm, like, I, I'm involved in everybody's life. And that's really, for most of us, just not the case. We exist in a little bubble. And so one of the first things we can do is kind of start to identify that bubble. And I'm actually gonna give you a tool at the end of this uh, that can really jolt your understanding of your bubble and who who your bubble is and who your bubble is not. We're gonna do that, as I said, by looking uh, at this story in Luke chapter chapter 10 that is, I dare say, uh, at the same time, one of the simplest parables that Jesus tells. I think E3 Kids did this last week. Is this right, the Good Samaritan? Yes, yes. So, so Liz led the kids through Good Samaritan. They're ahead of us on this. But it's also one of the most challenging things when you really delve into what Jesus is saying. So uh, we're gonna just start looking through the text here. We're gonna look at a lot of different scripture today. So get ready. Um, the text starts like this. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we're gonna sit on this just so we understand what's going on here. Uh, We're told that the the person is an expert in religious law. Uh, Other other New Testament gospel labels for this guy would be a scribe. It's a, it's a religious group in the first century. These guys, they can read, they can write. Not many people can read and write in the first century. They study the law. And studying the law is an important thing because for the Jews, the law really, really encapsulates how do you live in response to God's grace? 
How do you live in response to God's grace? How do we, how do we look at this God who set us free from slavery, who, who rescued us and who loves us? How do we respond to that? And so uh, the law, for those of you who don't know, really consists of two things. It consists of the first five books of the Bible, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. Um, and it, it exists in that written form. And then for the Jews, they also had an oral form. They had a verbal form of the law. And over time, groups of people uh, began to pour their lives into studying it, and they essentially became experts in it. They were leaders. And so this is who this guy is. He is a scribe, an expert in the law. But here's the deal. The text is also very obvious about his motivations, right? Why does he ask this question? To test Jesus, which is never a good idea. So, leader of, uh, leader of the Jews, leader of his religion, he asked Jesus, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? So he's gonna see what Jesus says because as these guys are the, the experts in the law, they're also sort of the guardians of the law. So if a guy like Jesus emerges and he's teaching and people are gravitating to his teaching, well, the religious experts in Jerusalem, the leaders, they say, hmm, we better check this guy Jesus out. We better see what his teaching consists of. So they send maybe a scribe and they say, you need to see what the essence of Jesus's teaching is. All right, so he shows up, he tests him. Jesus replies, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And again, the law of Moses, first five books of the Bible. And so Jesus responds, puts the ball back in this guy's court and say, well, you tell me first, what is the essence and the core of the law of, of, of Moses? And the guy responds with two, uh, two sort of summary statements. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. If you're an E3 person, does this sound familiar? And love your neighbor as yourself. So uh, the guy responds by quoting two Old Testament scriptures. The first comes out of Deuteronomy chapter six. It is called essentially the Shema of Israel. Deuteronomy six reads this way. Uh, Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. In ancient terms, this would basically just be saying, you need to love the Lord your God with all your being, all your totality, everything that you see in your world, whether it is your house, whether it is your pocketbook, whether it is your hands, whether it is your attitudes, you love the Lord your God with all of it. All of it goes on the table. And this forms the core, actually, of a Jewish prayer called the Shema. Like I said, uh, it is said multiple times a day for Jewish folks. All right, It's the way they sort of kick their, their personal and their corporate worship gatherings off. Then he actually adds another quotation from the Old Testament, another law from the Old Testament to it, Leviticus 19, which is very, very familiar as well. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your who? Neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So 
He takes Leviticus 19 and he takes Deuteronomy 6, both of which are central, central scriptures to the Jewish law. And he simply says this, this is the way, um, this is the way a good, faithful Jew would live in order to live in, in the way that God wants us to live for eternity. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Awesome. He scores 100. But it doesn't end there. Jesus told him, right, do this and you will live. The man should have stopped there. But he wanted to justify his actions. So we don't know exactly what is, what is kind of existing in this guy's past, but something makes him ask this question. And who is my neighbor? Because Leviticus 19, can we bring Leviticus 19 up again just a second? Uh, the text says, do not, revenge or, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against who? A fellow Israelite. But love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you were to look at the rest of, of the context of Leviticus 19, you can see that God does make provisions for people who are not Israelites. So he says, they, they call these people sometimes in the text foreigners or aliens. And he says, look, if there's an alien or, or a foreigner or an immigrant uh, in your midst, you should start treating them like other Israelites. So in other words, God makes provision for people who kind of wander in to Israel or wander into our reality. And God says, ah, ha, ha, love your neighbor as yourself. But this guy, I think he has something else in mind. Because there is a group of others in his world. You see, he can say, well, Israelites, they're in. They're in my group. They look like me. We, we worship in the same place. We go to the same people. Those people are my neighbors, and it's easy for me to say, okay, yes, love them as myself. And I understand that God has made provision. Sometimes there are people who are wander into our country, wander into our territory. God says, gotta love them too. But he says, ha, 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 wait a minute. But who is my neighbor? Because I know that there's a group of people who aren't in my territory, who don't look like. In other words, you could say it this way. He's asking Jesus, who do I not have to love? Who do I get a pass on? Who does God say, yeah, yeah, those folks, feel free to, to just give them the kibosh, right? He's looking for an out in regards to loving your neighbor. And so Jesus replies, as he so often does, with a story. Starts this way. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. So uh, first of all, let me show you a quick map of the first century. Um, Jerusalem is down in Judea. You can see it just uh, up and to the right of, of the label Judea. You see it? Then just up and to the right of that is Jericho. Um, Jerusalem is up high, Jericho is down low. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was widely acknowledged to be a dangerous road. So the man is coming uh, 
from Jerusalem down to Jericho, he gets attacked by bandits because that's what happens on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, here's something I would like you to, to notice, especially if you're reading the New Living Translation. The, the descriptive Jewish man is actually not in the text. Other translations just say it this way. A certain man was traveling. Just a, just a guy, a human being. So Jesus is already priming the pump because he's already saying, hey, what if a guy was traveling? And we don't know if this guy is an Israelite, Leviticus 19, or if he's just a human being that something has happened to. So Jesus is already pushing on this guy's question. Who's my neighbor? Well, let me tell you, what if you just, what if, a, what if something happened to a human being? So the text goes on. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A, a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Now, so you have priest, you have temple assistant. Basically, these guys were the religious leaders. They were the uh, superstar televangelists of the day. They were the folks who were charged with, with uh, occupying and, cl and cleaning and, and conducting the sacrifices at the temple. They're the center of Jewish religious life. And they see this human being hurt on the side of the road, and the text says they pass him by. And you may have heard that like, oh, you know, there's, there's reasons for this and the, there's, they're not supposed to touch a dead body, but the guy's not dead, so that doesn't really apply. And, and, it, and the priest could become defiled and he couldn't conduct his services in Jerusalem, but he's actually coming from Jerusalem. He's already done the thing he's supposed to do. Let me, let me bottom line it. If you really dig into the text, there's no reason religiously that they should not help this man. There's actually laws in Jewish law that say you have to a bury, if the guy's dead, you have to bury a body. You cannot leave a body open. doesn't matter who it is. The bottom line is these guys just see a human being suffering. They cross to the other side of the road, and they walk by. Now, before I go on, I want to tell you about an interesting uh, thing I read this week. A scholar identified, he was talk she was talking about something called the rule of threes. And uh, in, in the Old Testament, she was saying how uh, they, they would use the rule of threes sometime to, to help memorize and make points. And the rule of threes simply, we know the way it works. Like some of us might, might be able to complete this sentence. If I say, Larry Moe, you say, curly. Right, if you're a church person, uh, I say, father, son, you say, not curly, as somebody said earlier. So like, like these groups of people, these groups of, of concepts become very easy for us to fill in the blanks. And we hear the first two and our mind instantly goes, oh, I got the last third. Well, this scholar was pointing out that there was a rule of three in the Old Testament that you see in a couple interesting passages. Let me show you. Uh, Ezra reads like this. There's a passage in Ezra. I think it's chapter 10. Yes. So Ezra stood up and demanded that the leaders of the priests and the Levites and the people of Israel swear. So think about the text that we just read. Who were the people that passed the body by? We had a priest and we had a temple assistant. The Jewish word for that is a Levite. So this text also has a priest and a Levite. And then what's the third? The people of Israel. The priests, the Levites, the Israelites. 
Again, in Nehemiah, which is a very similar book to Ezra. Here lists the name of the provincial officials who came to live in Jerusalem. Most of the people, it's in a different order here. People, priests, Levites, temple servants. They add a couple more. But again, you see this threefold category. Priests, Levites, people of Israel. Priests, Levites, Israelites. So this scholar reads this and she, and, and she said, look, Jesus is setting up the rule of three. Who are the people that have passed by the body? The priest, the Levite. So the next thing that Jesus's audience would be expected, would be expecting is who? An Israelite because of the rule of three. The priest, the Levite, the Israelite. And so Jesus says, then a despised Samaritan. This would have put the brakes on the story for everybody who heard Jesus. They were all Jews, right? And they're like, whoa, what did you just do, Jesus? It's supposed to be a priest, a Levite, an Israelite, a priest, a Levite, a Samaritan. Now, who are the Samaritans? Let me, let me unpack this a little bit if you're new to the story. Um, so the kingdom of Israel used to be one united kingdom, right? under David, got kings like David, kings like Solomon. There was a king uh, named Rehoboam, and there started to be this tension between the, these uh, Israelite tribes that lived in the north and those that lived in the south. And they started to kind of argue, and, and, um, and Rehoboam comes to this opportunity where he says, look, you know, maybe you should give some of the tribes in the, the, the north a break. But this is what the story says in, in 1 Kings um, 12. Let's read this. Let's read this. When all Israel realized that the king had refused to listen to him. So Israel now is the northern territory. They go to Rehoboam. They said, can you give us a break about this? And the king basically says, no, no break. They responded, down with the dynasty of David. We have no interest in the son of Jesse. Back to your homes, O Israel. Look out for your own house, O David. So the people of Israel returned home. Next slide. But Rehoboam continued to rule over the Israelites who lived in the towns of Judah. What happens in this moment is the northern tribes revolt. They rebel. They separate themselves from the southern kingdom. So actually what you get in the Old Testament is two kingdoms. Let's show this map that I have of the two kingdoms, right? The kingdom of Israel is in the north. The kingdom of Judah is actually in the south. Judah is where Jerusalem is. The north is where Samaria is. And over time, this actually becomes a pretty, uh, a pretty tense rivalry. And if that wasn't enough, eventually uh, the Assyrian Empire, way up there in the top right-hand corner, they conquer the northern kingdom. And that's uh, that's described in 2 Kings chapter 17. So let's read this. The king of Assyria transported groups of people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim and resettled them in towns of Samaria, replacing the people of Israel. So the king of Assyria brings a bunch of foreign people into the northern kingdom and they settle it. They took possessions of Samaria and lived in its towns. Next slide. But since these foreign settlers did not worship the Lord when they first arrived, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. 
just email me later if you need to talk about that one. So a message was sent to the king of Assyria. The people you've sent to the towns of Samaria, they don't know the religious customs of the God of the land. And he sent lions among them to destroy them because they've not worshipped him correctly. Next slide. The king of Assyria then commanded, send one of the exiled priests back to Samaria. Let him live there and teach the new residents the religious customs of the God of the land. So what had happened is uh, the king of Assyria took all the people, a bunch of people out of Israel, brought a bunch of foreign people in, and they don't know how to worship God the way they did. So he's like, hey, we've got some priests that we've taken into exile. Send a couple of them back so they can teach the people. Then this passage ends up this way. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria returned to Bethel and taught the new residents how to worship the Lord. Now, the problem with this is that over time, these uh, foreign people that settled in Samaria, they began to marry into some of the Israelites that were left. That was a big no-no for the Jews. You didn't take husbands and wives from other countries because being Jewish was like a part of your family, it's part of your ethnic. So they begin to mix the bloodlines, so to speak. And furthermore, when the priests come back to teach the folks how to worship, they don't quite teach them all of the things the right way. So actually, they set up a a rival temple. You have a temple in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom sets up his own temple, its own temple. This is essentially a betrayal on multiple levels from the southern kingdom's perspective. So from the southern kingdom's perspective, you have people who are like, look, you rebelled and married into a conquering kingdom's people. And you betrayed the temple. You set up your own priesthood. You have perverted our religion. You've perverted our our ethnic and national heritage. So the Samaritans are despised. There's a rabbinical text where God just calls the Samaritans a stupid people. And so Jesus throws the Samaritan into the story. Deal with that. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. And going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Priest, Levite, despised Samaritan who sees the man, has compassion, treats him in a personal way, and then uses his own pocket money to ensure the man's recovery. So where does this leave us? Jesus looks at this expert in the law and he says, now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor? Remember, who are we supposed to be a neighbor to according to Leviticus? A fellow Israelite. Or maybe somebody who's wandered into our territory. A Samaritan is neither of those things. 
A Samaritan, we would have a label for it, is the enemy. A Samaritan is the other. A Samaritan is the outsider. And Jesus says, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And the man replied, because he can't even say the word Samaritan. The one who showed him what? Mercy. So again, Leviticus 19. Jesus is saying, look, this whole idea of who my neighbors are, it doesn't stop with the people who look like me. It doesn't stop with the people who have my similar last name. It doesn't stop with the people who worship the same way I do. It doesn't stop with the people who actually wander into my territory. Leviticus 19, neighbor, hmm, you want to know who the neighbor is? Anybody. Even the enemy. Even the outsiders. We, according to Jesus, have no right to refuse compassion and mercy even to our enemies. And at this point, probably everybody who's listening to Jesus is probably squirming a little bit. Maybe the way you are, the way that I am, because I think about the people, again, who don't look like me, the others in my life. I mean, there are people here, if I can be honest, maybe you can be honest, there are people in the world that I do not want to love. I could show you pictures of, of maybe just people, different people from around the world, and surely if I showed one of these pictures of just people with different ethnic backgrounds or different religions or, or different you know, clothes that they would wear or different political slogans, one of those pictures would trigger something inside you. And you would say, oh, yeah, but not that person. That's your other. And yet Jesus says, okay, that person that you just had that <gasps> reaction to, that's the person you have to love. Oh, really, Jesus? Really? Really. But what would you say to me if I told you it doesn't even stop there? Because there's a subtlety to this story that I miss all the time. See, it, it, it ends uh, this way. Jesus replies to the man, look, you're right. The one who showed, or the man replies, the one that you showed him mercy, then Jesus says, now go and do the same. And the first thing we, we read, the first, first reaction is like, yes, I'm supposed to be what? I'm supposed to be the good Samaritan. I'm supposed to help the people, even the people who don't look like me, except when you go back and read the subtleties of the story, you realize that there's an interesting, interesting twist on this. And it starts really with just looking at 36 and 37 again. Which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Which of these three was a neighbor? And the guy asks by saying, well, wait, who is my neighbor? That's, that's how the guy starts this story off. The man just wants to justify his actions. So he asks Jesus, well, Jesus, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells a story. Who was the neighbor? The man says, well, the guy who showed him mercy. You see, when I read the Good Samaritan, and maybe when you read the Good Samaritan, the, 
the place we find ourselves in the story is in the shoes of the Good Samaritan. It's just natural because that's the way most of us have heard it. We're supposed to show compassion. Oh, and by the way, we are. But, but the subtleties of the way the guy asks the question, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, the neighbor is the guy who showed mercy. And the more I thought about it, the, the more I think Jesus is saying, you know where you're supposed to find yourself in the story, Eric? You're supposed to find yourself in the story of the man who was beaten up and lying on the side of the road. You're not just supposed to find yourself in this part of the story where you get to do the helping, even helping your enemies. Eric, you're the guy who got beaten up by the side of the road. Which brings a whole new level of this challenge of how we look at the other in our lives. Because if we're only ever the Samaritan, we always get to do the helping. And helping your enemies is difficult. But have you guys have ever been in a position where you have needed help from an enemy? Have you ever been in a position where somebody that you despise had to give you help and you had to swallow your pride and prejudice and accept help? from the other in your life. Because that's where Jesus is heading. You see, Jesus says, look, yes, you need to have compassion towards everybody, including the outsiders. But Jesus says, also, guess what? Also, 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 you need help from the people who don't look like you. And that requires, I don't know if you're anything like me, that requires a whole new level of humility. Because I look at these people, and again, I'm just being honest, uh, I look at the people who, who fall into the category of not like Eric, not thinking like Eric, not having Eric's values. And I go, well, you know what? I could help them. Maybe I could help them come to understand Eric better. Maybe I could teach them something or two about life. Maybe I could Maybe even if they needed a hand, I could swoop in with like a magic carpet and a cape and I could save the day for them. But what this parable tells me is that, guess what? Those people have something to teach me. That I shouldn't always assume that I'm right. That I shouldn't always assume that I know the way the world looks and works. And that maybe sometimes my role in life is when I have those people who push against me, my action, my role is to shut up and, and listen and learn and get, let them give to me. That to me takes this thing to a whole other level. I said, uh, you know, the man asked this question, um, like I said earlier, that he's trying to figure out, um, who do I get to not love? And Jesus first says, you don't get to not love anybody, but actually, you actually need to let people love you. That you might not want to let love you. And I think this has interesting ramifications for everything we do. And I was just, I was thinking about this this morning. You know, this thought kind of is at the core of uh, sort of our service and outreach ministries. Serve Tallahassee, global outreach. Both of these are, are, are predicated on the fact that we don't have all the answers as mostly white, affluent Americans. 
They're built on the core that when we go to another culture, whether it be a subculture like in Frenchtown or whether we go to Guatemala or Haiti or Uganda, guess what? Actually, they can teach us an awful lot about life. They can actually teach us a lot, an awful lot about God. Rather than us kind of rolling in and say, we get to show you Jesus, bam. We sit down and we listen and we look and we go, oh my gosh, Jesus is so present in you. But this also has profound implications for the way I live my life and I dare say maybe the way you live your life. When you come across those people, those others, you sit down and you go, maybe I don't have all the answers about Jesus. Maybe you can show me a thing or two about life that maybe I have never seen before. I think that's where Jesus is going. Embracing the other also involves letting the other embrace us and us starting with the belief that I don't have it all put together. I don't have all the answers. I'm poor, I'm beaten, I'm lying on the side of the road. I need somebody to help me. And as Dan pointed out, guess what? We are all the other according to God. But God has also placed other human beings in our world and a lot of these people have walked across the road to us, and our tendency is to say, I appreciate that you've walked across the road from me. I don't need your help because I don't like you. You don't come from the part of town that I wish you came from. You don't have the beliefs that, and God and Jesus would say, but they walked across the road to you. And he says, Sometimes the best thing you can do is to lie there and let them bind your wounds and let them provide for you. That's what pushed on me this week with this parable. Thursday, Friday, I thought I had it all buttoned down. And then I kept looking at that. Wait a minute. Who's, who's the neighbor? Wait a minute. I'm not, the, I'm not the Samaritan. I'm the guy on the side of the road. That was much more uncomfortable for me. I hope it is for you. Now, here's what I want to leave you guys with. <laughs> I don't normally do this, but there's an actually a, a, a really good test. Because most of us, we would start this question, like, well, who's the other? And we go, oh, I have no others in my life. I love everybody. Wrong. If you are human you have others. And like I said, the greatest gift you can give yourself and the people around you is owning it and saying, I've got people that I'm not comfortable with. So I'm gonna give you a really great tool to identify who the others are in your life. It's a test, an online test. I've taken it myself. Here's the web address, implicit.harvard.edu. Take it. Take it and be troubled. Take it and be shocked. Take it and maybe take the first step into realizing there are people that out there that you need to receive help from because God has brought them across the road to you. And let that start the journey of embracing the other in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for closing prayer. 